This is the Disciple Makers Podcast. The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was Disciple Maker, and two organizations, Radical Mentoring and Samson Society, hosted a track called Men's Discipleship. And that's where we recorded the audio for today's episode. Make sure to go online and download a free ebook from Nate Larkin, who founded the Samson Society. It's called Beyond Accountability. It's about practical ways to disciple someone through addiction. It's available for free at discipleship.org slash accountability. That's discipleship.org slash accountability. As you listen, just a heads up, we weren't able to capture all the audio when people asked questions, so bear with us as you hear presenters respond to questions that may not necessarily be included in the audio. And now for the track session. Well, here we are at the National Disciple Making Forum, here to focus for a couple of days specifically on the Great Commission and to ask ourselves, ask each other, how we can best in our day uh, obey the command to make disciples of all nations. And specifically, how to do that the way Jesus did it. You know, one thing that I find very striking is that Jesus didn't, Jesus chose his first disciples from the margins of the dominant religious culture. Um, the <laughs> The upright Orthodox uh, elite wasn't really thrilled with Jesus, and he wasn't that thrilled with them. At one point, as part of a long denunciation of them, he ridiculed their efforts in disciple-making. Remember that? Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You travel across land and sea to make a single convert. When you finally succeed, you make him twice the child of hell that you are. Pretty harsh. Well, those teachers of the law and Pharisees eventually succeeded in getting Jesus arrested and executed. But by that time, his disciples had become capable of disciple-making. And after the resurrection and the day of Pentecost, they proceeded to turn the world upside down. Now, Jesus did then choose a member of the Religious elite, the resurrected Christ, chose a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Um, and when Paul set out on his missionary journeys, first with Barnabas and then with Silas, to carry the gospel to the Roman Empire, he made it a practice whenever he came to a city to go first to the synagogue, where he usually got a pretty frosty reception. He was not gladly heard by the upright and the orthodox. And sometimes it was at risk to his life. But he did find a receptive audience on the fringes of that culture and in the marketplace. Um, and he would, uh, he would speak there to the God-fearing Greeks men and women who sincere, had a sincere desire to love and serve God, but who didn't have the right pedigree. Um, he was gladly heard by women 
and by slaves. And when he told them that a new era has come and there is now no more Jew nor Greek, male nor female, bond nor free, uh, they responded to that message. He always spent time in every city where he found an audience. He was usually there for quite an extended length of time, building relationships. And um, those disciples became disciple makers who made disciples who made disciples and they're responsible for us in this room today. There's a principle here, I think. And it's not just in the New Testament. It's striking to me the way the Bible describes King David. Um... How after he was driven from the palace by Saul, he went to hide in the cave of Adullam, And there, those who were, it says this in 1 Samuel, those who were in distress and in debt and were disconnected gathered around him. And he became their leader. The principle, I think, is that desperados can make pretty good disciples. I want to talk to you today about modern desperados. There are an awful lot of them, men and women who are in distress and in debt and are discontented, often because their lives are being ruined and ravaged by addiction. And oddly enough, those who have found healing uh, within a caring community are often, as was pointed out in the plenary session just minutes ago, often the most motivated and the most skilled and the most productive of evangelists and disciple makers in the church. This was actually news to me 19 years ago. I had uh, no idea that this was true or that God was at work. Dr. Dale Ryan of Fuller Seminary refers to the modern recovery movement as a revival. He makes the point that in terms of numbers, scope, and social influence, the recovery movement is the greatest popular spiritual movement since the Second Great Awakening. It doesn't get a lot of press. In fact, 12-step recovery avoids the press intentionally. It's one of their principles. It happens mostly underground. They they do meet at church, but in the basement in the middle of the week while all the good people are gone. Um, And I never went to the basement because I was an aspiring Pharisee. I was a member of the religious elite. So I'm a graduate of Princeton Seminary. Uh, I'll tell you my story. I don't know how many of you know my story, but I think it's important for you to know my story to understand uh, where I'm coming from here. So I grew up in a Christian home. My dad was a pastor. Grew up in the Pentecostal tradition. Um, And I was marked for ministry from a very early age. I was always, you know, short for my age, nearsighted, not very athletic. There were a lot of things that I wasn't good at, but I was good at church. And uh, so I had a great memory back then. I could, I could, uh, 
I could memorize scripture. Sometimes I'm told my dad would sit me up on the pulpit and I could reel off entire chapters of the Bible in King James English, just like my mother had taught them to me. It was very impressive. Uh, and I could sing, too. I had, I had a, a clear soprano voice and a strong set of lungs. Sometimes Dad, when he went out of town to preach, would bring me along to sing the offertory. I'd set him up, he'd knock him down. And the church ladies loved me. When the service was over, we'd stand at the back and Dad would shake the, the men's hands and the ladies would lean over and pinch my cheek and tell me what a fine young man I was and predict that one day I was going to be a preacher just like my dad. And I knew they were right. And I would preach to millions. Um, my first exposure to pornography took me completely by surprise. <laughs> Nobody had warned me that porn even existed. Nobody told me that Every boy eventually sees porn. Every boy instinctively likes porn because it depicts something we're wired by God to want. Uh, it was a Playboy magazine at the end of an aisle at the back of our neighborhood grocery store. And I felt I was 10 years old. My mother had just died uh, a year before. I had a lot of issues going on, a lot of loneliness, and there was and I was just starting to hit puberty, there was something absolutely magical that I did not understand. Something very inviting in the smile of that woman. Um, so this was the 1960s. And through the 60s and the 70s, through high school, I was always, I always went to public school and was always the Christian kid. Always... I was the kid who brought his Bible to school, who started the Bible club. I was the kid that the teacher pointed out to others as a, a model of behavior. Sometimes I heard my classmates refer to me behind my back as Saint Nate, which I took as a compliment, proof that I was being a good witness. And that, after all, is what was drilled into me was most important, that I never do anything to bring shame upon the name of Jesus. So it was imperative as my interest in pornography grew that nobody ever find out. And, um, and I hid it very well. My teenage years, I did manage to amass a small collection of you know, glossy men's magazines that I kept concealed in a corner of the basement in the Baptist church beneath some out-of-date Sunday school quarterlies. Uh, <laughs> occasionally, maybe after youth camp or after a youth rally, after I had once again walked the aisle, I would take them out to a burn barrel and ceremoniously set a flame. But uh, it wouldn't be too long before I'd start to reconstitute the collection. And I had no idea what was going on, none at all. No idea what it was doing to my brain. Uh, no idea that I was actually becoming addicted to something harmful. Um, 
In college, I rationalized my porn use. By that time, I was tired of fighting it. Uh, I convinced myself that it was now time to join the 20th century to get some sex education. <laughs> um, what better place to get it than porn? And I got a job in the basement of the uh, university library. I was in charge of periodicals. And among the many bound periodicals was a full collection of Playboy magazine from the first issue. And uh, they weren't supposed to leave the library, but I was an employee. And I can see those images to this day. Um, met my wife my last year in college. Uh, was very much looking forward to marriage for a lot of things. And I met this wonderful woman who I just connected with. Um, she, despite the fact that we were different in a lot of ways. For one thing, she was, she was a single mom. She already had a child. She was 10 years older than me. Uh, but we'd lost a mother at the same age. We seemed to connect. Uh, we could finish each other's sentences. You've probably had that experience. I hope you have. And I... One of the great things about the prospect of marriage was I was certain it was going to solve my porn problem. I was shocked and astonished to find out that it didn't. I now uh, believe that the most pernicious property of pornography is this. It offers an imaginary connection with a virtual person or persons, which if we accept it, begins at that moment to compromise our ability to form and sustain a real relationship with an actual person. Long-term porn use creates an intimacy disorder. I didn't know it. I had no idea that in those years when I told myself I was practicing for marriage, I was actually poisoning my marriage, allowing pornography to create expectations for marriage that no woman on the planet could ever fulfill. Um, that was a horrendous realization, the fact that um, the urge to uh, return to that imaginary harem had not disappeared. However, I was determined never to be physically unfaithful to my wife. Now, up till now, uh, it had all been uh, glossy magazines available at gas stations and convenience stores or uh, dumpsters. But uh, in seminary, uh, things got worse. Came out of class one day to see a poster on the wall advertising a field trip for seminarians, co-sponsored by the seminary and a group called Women Against Pornography. What they proposed to do was to take us into Times Square, which was in the late 70s, a toilet, um, so that we could see firsthand how women are exploited by the sex business. And I thought, this is exactly what I need. Uh, because I'm a good person, and I certainly don't want to hurt anybody, and if it really is as bad as they say, if I can get a look behind the curtain, I'll stop. Um, spouses were welcome, so I brought my wife along. Uh, I got my first look at hardcore porn, the kind of stuff that any unsupervised eight-year-old can find in two minutes today on the Internet, uh, as a married man with my wife sitting beside me in the peep show booth.
She put the quarter in. Now, Allie was uh, disgusted by what she saw. And in that moment, I was too. In that moment, I could see that it was all a sham. But at the same time, it's as though somewhere deep inside me, a door swung open. And it wasn't very many days after that that I began slipping away from seminary and from home and driving down into Trenton, New Jersey in search of a source for my new drug because, baby, I had found my drug. I didn't realize that these moving images are much more powerful than the still images I'd been using up until that point. They actually stimulate a part of the brain that cannot distinguish uh, virtual from actual experience. Um, they were incredibly powerful, despite the fact that those first peep shows that I saw, this was, this was, this was before sound. I remember a couple years later jumping in a peep show booth when I first heard sound, which... Uh, multiplied even more the power of the virtual experience. While we're on the subject, what's coming down the pike is absolutely terrifying. The virtual uh, pornography that already is making its way into hotels. If video porn is crack, virtual reality porn is meth. Um, anyway, back to the story. Um, I was so discouraged by my inability to control this. I actually served as a pastor to a rural congregation my last two years in seminary. It was 30 miles from the seminary out in the cornfields of uh, South Jersey. And there was an adult bookstore halfway between the seminary and the church. And uh, you know, I would pray to be able to drive past it to get to church. Sometimes I would make it past it on the way there, but never that I can remember on the way back. My car just knew its way. And I would quit, and I would pray, uh, and I would beat myself, berate myself. Uh, I couldn't stop. Even when I met, in a very embarrassing moment, a seminary professor in one of those uh, stores. And he accosted me later at the school to explain to me how this was nothing to be ashamed of or afraid of and his wife was into it and maybe wife, my wife was too. And But when I graduated, I, did, I couldn't bring myself to accept a pulpit. I knew I was too broken. I found a church that advertised itself as a healing community. They had a, they had a counseling center. It was in South Florida. We moved to Florida. Sold, uh, sold every, had a big yard sale to buy a van, then realized we didn't have the money for gas. Sold the gas, uh, sold the van uh, on the condition that the guy who bought it pick it up in Florida. And uh, packed, uh, by then, the three kids in the van, towed a trailer, went to Florida. And I took a job as a church janitor. It was there at a men's retreat that I heard uh, a priest speak about his 
battle with pornography. It's the first time I'd ever heard porn mentioned in church. I was shocked. What was most shocking is that um, most men in the room seemed to relate and the ceiling didn't fall in. Went home from that retreat and found the courage to uh, sit my wife down and confess to her what I had done, been doing. I'm married to an extraordinary woman. And uh, to my you know, great good fortune as a former hippie. And so she's not, she wasn't absolutely shocked in a way that maybe a gingham clad church girl might have been. And she said, I'm sorry that you uh, had to keep this from me. Um, I don't want you to have to keep me. Certainly, um, I don't endorse that behavior. But I don't want you to have to fight it alone. And whenever you're tempted, you can tell me. And just that confession was enough to make the obsession lift, at least temporarily. And I was jubilant because I had finally found the key. My wife could become my accountability partner in all matters sexual, and nobody else would ever have to know. Now, my wife was willing to do, she volunteered for the job because she loves me, but she volunteered for a job that God did not build her to do. Uh, and I could tell after a few of those confessions that she could never hear the news from me that I found another woman sexually attractive. She could never hear that news objectively. It always in her own mind pointed out some deficiency on her own part. It was discouraging to her. And I don't like to hurt her. Eventually I stopped telling her. She concluded that that's because we'd made it through the white water and the danger had passed. Um, and because I was not yet, uh, hadn't returned to the behavior, I was holding on in white-knuckle abstinence, I found the nerve at that point to start a church. Um, people wanted us to start a church, so we did. And it was wonderful, and then it was terrifying. And uh, eventually I returned to that familiar drug, but I was very careful. I was never caught. It was dangerous to go looking for porn now that I was a pastor. Uh, this is long before, the, this is well before the internet. I had to go to adult bookstores to get what I wanted. Uh, there was a charge of adrenaline, I think, accompanying that risk that, that was even uh, connected, uh, I think. Um, and then it got worse. We're about three and a half years in, I think. It was Christmas Eve. Our church uh, was going to have a Christmas Eve service. We had borrowed a beautiful sanctuary downtown, downtown Fort Lauderdale. And uh, I had to go early to get things set up. Allie would follow later with the kids. So it's a late afternoon. I've just gotten off the interstate driving east on Broward Boulevard. It's an overcast, blustery, cold day in the upper 50s. And, and it starts to rain. Ahead of me, I see a lone female figure walking along the sidewalk. I do what I think is the chivalrous thing, pull over to offer her a ride. I have no idea what she's doing until she's in the car and propositioning me. 
Now, by this time, I had been so conditioned by pornography to objectify women. <laughs> and I had participated as a voyeur in uh, sexual situations so many times that honestly, when she propositioned me, I didn't even see the person in the car. Not the girl. It never even crossed my mind to wonder why she would be out on Christmas Eve selling her body to strangers. Never wondered uh, what her family like was like. Life was like. Did she still live at home? Was she, did she? Did she have a boyfriend? Did she have a husband? Did she have a child? Was she an addict? Did she have a name? I just automatically went for my wallet. Because I had $20. It was supposed to go in the plate. It never went in the offering that night. So that was, just a few hours later, the worst night <laughs> I'd ever experienced. There in the, you know, the light, the flickering light of the candles, the sound of the sacred music, looking out at my wife and family and the people who loved and trusted me, knowing what I'd done. And worse, knowing that I was going to do it again. I didn't want to. I prayed I wouldn't. I promised God I wouldn't. I begged. I, and I didn't right away. But not long after the first of the year, I did. And then I did it again and again and again. I was always very careful. I was never caught. But the stress of the double life was enormous and I despised my own hypocrisy. There's nothing that'll take the life out of a ministry like a second life. Um, I woke up on my 30th birthday five years in knowing that I couldn't keep this up. Famous preachers were getting busted for sexual uh, indiscretions. Their faces were plastered on newsstands. They were all over the evening news. I wasn't famous, but I was building a good reputation in South Florida. And my job was enough, and the story would be juicy enough when they caught me that I'd make the front page. That's what I thought. And to me, that was the most terrifying prospect I could imagine, that other people would know. In a moment of clarity, I knew I either had to quit the behavior or quit the ministry. And at that point, there was only one thing I could quit. So I told my wife I wanted to quit. Now, Allie had seen the way I had drifted away from her emotionally, beginning, uh, beginning in seminary. She had some explanation when I confessed the porn, but now it just seemed like we were farther and farther apart. She knew I was under stress. She attributed it to the ministry. And so if it meant leaving the only vocation I'd ever trained for, if it meant sacrifice, if it meant risk, if it would get me out from under that stress, she was all for it. So I announced my retirement at the ripe age of 30. <coughs> Went into business. 
where I had the great misfortune to succeed, make a lot of money, far more money than I'd ever seen in the ministry, with even less accountability. And what followed was a very dark dozen years. Uh, reconstructing it later to the best of my, my best estimate is that I spent in total uh, $300,000 on pornography and prostitutes. Uh, but that's, that's, that's not the worst part. I spent my children's childhood. I spent in all 20 years of my wife's life, 20 years of mine, trading my birthright day after day for a bowl of beans. But I never missed church. The, day, the Sunday after we left the ministry, we were in church. We joined a church. I loved church. St. Nate could breathe at church. Yes, it was hard on Sunday morning in the beginning till I fought my way to the foot of the cross and made my private confession. Grateful that I wasn't a Roman Catholic and would ever have to confess to somebody else. Yeah. Man, I didn't think. But that, to me, that would be the most horrible thing to actually have to say it to somebody else. Um, and then I would get uh, some kind of an assurance that I was forgiven and then I could, I could sing in that. I could serve in that. And I did. I taught Sunday school. I helped lead the youth group. I sang in the worship team. I filled in for the preacher sometimes. St. Nate could breathe at church. I just couldn't get him to breathe on his own for very long outside the building. And I was convinced that I was completely alone and unique. I was the only guy in church who was fighting that battle. That's what I thought. Well, there was a point where another guy who had spotted me in an adult bookstore, went and confessed to the pastor and then told him he'd seen me. And I was called in and the pastor asked me if it was true. And I seriously considered lying my way out of it. I had enough um, collateral that I could have pulled it off. But it was also maybe an opportunity for freedom and confession again. So I confessed and braced for the worst because uh, he said, well, I'm going to have to talk to the elders and we have to decide what to do. Of course, you know, you've got to resign from all positions immediately and uh, may have to confess in front of the church. And I'll tell you what scared me. In my years in the church, including my years as a pastor, I had participated in the disciplining of other people, other men who had been caught uh, or who, <laughs> you know, in a euphoric state had taken our... Um, our message of grace at face value and it confessed to sexual sin. Um, I'd participated in stoning these guys. Uh, I mean, if I wasn't throwing the rocks, I was holding the coats. I was convinced that that was the way to deal with this kind of thing. And... uh, I knew now that my, any chance of leadership in this church was gone. Theoretically, there was a window for me to be restored at some point. I, 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 I was convinced that by 
the following Sunday, the prayer chain would have been activated and everybody would have been notified. Um, it was terrifying. Uh, and I had to go tell my wife. She was ashamed, very conditioned to shame, and angry at me for shaming the family. Uh, but she still loves me. And uh, mercifully, the elders decided not to make a public event of uh, my sin. Uh, and they assigned me an accountability partner, a guy. One of the elders volunteered to be my accountability partner. And he and I would meet for breakfast once a week. And uh, the idea was that he would ask me the hard questions and uh, keep me on the straight and narrow. Well, by the second meeting, I was lying. (laughs) Uh, This whole arrangement was based on the insane idea that I could hold it together on my own for an entire week. I'd gotten no help with the addiction, no insight, just uh, the pressure had been ratcheted up and the pressure itself was not enough to bring me to freedom. So uh, I went underground. I'll tell you what, it got really, really dark. Uh, I don't mean to take my story this long. I want to get to the good part quickly. So I'll say that 19 years ago now, my wife got a phone call from our oldest son, actually from his wife, She was married by this time. She called with the news that they were pregnant, that they were moving to Middle Tennessee because they'd heard it was a great place to raise kids. They wondered whether we would consider moving here too to be close to the baby. (coughs) And My wife, who at this point was in clinical depression and nobody had any idea why, said, I want to go. So we moved just like that. And suddenly the obsession lifted. It was amazing. Allie and I are hanging curtains. We're buying furniture. We're holding hands, walking to church. We're kids again. And I thought, wow, all that time the problem was Florida. (laughs) Uh, But then we started uh, to run out of money. And when that happened, I started to get scared. And when that happened, I reached for the only fear medication I'd ever used. So one night after Allie had fallen asleep, I slipped out of bed, went back to the office, fired up my computer, and started downloading porn. And by now, I had broadband. Everything had changed. Um, yeah, I didn't have to take a risk anymore to find the porn now. An endless supply, an endless variety of virtual sex partners delivered free of charge the privacy and anonymity of my own home in full motion video, which overwhelms the higher portions of the brain where decisions take place and moral judgments are made. I don't know how long I was there. Time disappeared as it does whenever we're in a dissociated state. But at one point I looked up and my wife was standing there. I hadn't even heard her come in. And she had this look of shocked incomprehension on her face. 
She didn't say anything. She turned and left. I quickly shut everything down, followed her back into the bedroom, apologizing and promising and explaining and begging. It was a very long night. But in the end, she forgave me. A couple weeks later, though, she found a condom on the floor in the bathroom that I couldn't quite explain. And this time, she sat me down on the edge of our bed and she said, I'm done. She said, I still love you, but I don't like you. I don't trust you. I don't respect you. And I don't think you can ever change. With those words, she saved my life. Four out of five guys who seek help for sexually compulsive behavior only do so after receiving an ultimatum from a wife or a girlfriend. I'm one of the four. It struck me that if I had any chance at all of salvaging the only friendship I had, I was going to have to do something I'd never done before. I was going to have to go for help. Now, I didn't go to the church for help. I didn't trust the church. Didn't go to a pastor. I'd been a pastor. Didn't trust pastors. I didn't go to a therapist. I was broke. I went back to the internet, called up the Alta Vista search engine. This is pre-Google days. Typed in sex addiction Nashville and discovered to my astonishment that I had apparently moved to the center of the universe for sex addiction recovery. Groups and therapists everywhere. There was, a, there was a number for a 12-step group. I called, left a message. A few minutes later, somebody called back to tell me where there was a meeting in a church the next town over, 7 o'clock that night. I got there at quarter to 7, sat in the parking lot as other people pulled up and went inside. I couldn't find the courage to get out of my car. 7.15, I drove away. Drove around for an hour coming up with a story I'd tell my wife. The next week I was back, about to drive away for the second time, when I saw a guy I recognized from church. He was just a guy. But I'd heard him speak up a few times in men's Bible studies, and there was something about this guy I liked. He seemed a very comfortable in his own skin. It was clear he didn't need to impress anybody. He loved Jesus. But here was the most striking thing about him. This guy talked about his sin in the present tense. I followed him inside. And what I found in the basement of that church changed my life. Not right away. In fact, due to my intellectual and religious arrogance, it would actually be another three and a half years before I tasted true sexual sobriety. But it started that night. I remember coming out of that church mad, furious, that I had spent a lifetime in church and had never been in a room that safe. I'd never heard honesty like that in my life. I'd never been around such humility, felt such empathy, such kindness, such love. I'd never heard Jesus like I heard him in that room in the mouths of a bunch of Samaritans who didn't even seem to know his proper name. They kept referring to him as a higher power. And when the meeting was over, the guy from church said, 
if you want, I'll walk with you a while. He became my first male friend since childhood. And although I didn't know what he was doing, he, he began to disciple me. We'd meet uh, twice a week to go for a walk. And he'd talk about his own life. One thing that I, I, I really wanted to put him on a pedestal right away, and he kept climbing down. Uh, he would tell me about his own struggles and failures. It was a very disconcerting thing. I, I was not accustomed to anybody who I regarded as an authority or a teacher to be that human. Um, but his honesty made it a whole lot easier for me to be honest myself. He wanted me to call him every day and leave a message to tell him what I was feeling, what I was thinking, what I was doing, and what I was thinking of doing. Um, I remember what happened after my first slip. I would rehearse that call because I really... I was trying to put this guy into a... I was trying to make him into a Yoda or put him in a father role. I wanted to... I really wanted to impress him. So I'd rehearse the call. I remember I had my first slip. And I... I didn't make a call for a couple of days. I waited a couple of days until I got my feet back under me until I could safely talk about the slip in the past tense. And then at the end of a well-rehearsed phone call, I casually mentioned, oh, by the way, I did have a slip last Tuesday, but I'm fine. And it was really a good thing. I learned from it, and I'm certain it'll never happen again. And then I waited for the punch. And it never came. He said, I'm sorry. That must have sucked. Are you okay? I told this story when I went to Reggie's thing. You know what he did? This is what he did. (laughs) He said... um, do you like ice cream? I said, well, yeah, who doesn't like ice cream? He said, uh, he asked me where I was. He said, i tell you what I want you to do. He says, I want you to go, go get yourself some ice cream. Do you know how many guys I've sent for ice cream? Because we're conditioned to go to shame and self-hatred. We're, we're, to go straight to jail and don't pass go. And sit there until you're good and sorry. Fix it. Instead, I got, I got some love. He wasn't endorsing what I'd done. He was endorsing me. And he was teaching me to love myself. 
so that it might then become possible for me to become a little less self-centered and capable of loving others. Um, you know, he, he said some things that rocked my world. I remember after I did my first step with him, he said, he said you know what your biggest problem is, Nate? He said, your biggest problem is that you think that sex is your problem. I looked at him like he was crazy. Like he certainly hadn't been listening. He said, I said, what do you mean sex is not a problem? He said, well, it's a problem. It's a big problem. and You have to stop and you can't. God's going to have to do it for you. And he's probably going to use us in the process. But if you think that just stopping that sexual behavior is going to fix you and make you happy, you're crazy. If anything, if all you do is stop that behavior, you'll become more miserable and more miserable to be around than you are today because sex is not your problem. Sex is your favorite solution. It's the medication that you've been using all these years to numb the pain caused by your deeper problems, which, by the way, are common to man. He said you have a lot more healing and a lot more repenting to do than you know. This is not sin management, and we're not focused monomaniacally on sex. Yes, we can talk about it, but that's not the focus. We're going to go some other places. Pride, self-centeredness, idolatry, fear, anger, and resentment, self-pity. That's where we're going. It was, uh, it was after walking him for, with him for a while that uh, it finally sunk in, you know, the mistake that I had made. I'd always had a personal relationship with Jesus since I was, you know, this, this tall, getting saved every summer. Um, but I had understood that personal relationship to be a private one. And I had spent years begging God for a private solution to my private problem. Well, the truth is, Jesus offers a personal relationship to every one of his disciples, but he's never offered anybody a private one. He first said, follow me to two guys, not just one, and quickly added ten more to them. Had them follow him around together for a couple of years as he taught them that the most important thing was that they love each other. Whenever he sent them out to minister, he sent them out in pairs. And he was, as he was reaching the end of his earthly ministry, he sat him down one day and he said, Fellas, I'm going to be leaving soon, but I'll still be with you under this condition. When two or three of you are gathered in my name, I'll be there. Two or three. I grew up singing, I come to the garden alone. Turns out, I am a colossal failure as a solo disciple for the very simple reason that Jesus doesn't have any solo disciples. We can only follow him together. He came to reconcile us to God and to each other and to reconstitute the family of God. Now, I had been screaming at him for years to deliver me from this thing. I told him that I wanted sexual integrity, but that's not really what I wanted. You know what I wanted? I wanted to be morally self-sufficient. 
I wanted to be like God. I didn't want to need anybody else. And God was kind enough not to answer that prayer. Um, I have a great freedom today, uh, but it's a fragile freedom. Uh, I asked God for a lifetime supply of it, and He uh, refused shipment. He only sends it a day at a time, and I have to be humble enough to go out and pick it up every morning like manna. I protect it with the help of boundaries and brothers. I, I keep it by giving it away. And that is, that was to me was one of the great revelations of this life. You know, I, I'm very grateful for the 12-step movement. It's not perfect. Not all of its ideas are on point. Uh... But if addiction is, to a large extent, an attachment issue, and I think it is, that safe healing community is miraculous. Um, And I was astonished to discover how my recovery went to a new level when it came time for me to help another person. So uh, the way it happened was this. I, uh, <laughs> I was working, still in the engineering business, pays the bills, and uh, working with my sponsor, and I'm three and a half years in, something like that. And, uh, and I have a slip on the Internet. So I give him a call. He says, meet me at Starbucks in 20 minutes. Good sponsor. So I meet him at Starbucks. He says, okay, tell me what happened. So I said, well, I just it was that quick. I didn't see it coming. I'm just, I'm in the office. I, I, just one click of the mouse and boom, I'm in the soup. He says, in the office. He said, uh, I thought you took the door off your office. I said, well, I did. After the last slip, I took the door off the office and aimed the monitor toward the door. But nobody else came to work today and I'm in the suite by myself. He said, well, it seems like your last series of slips have all been at the office. How bad do you need an office? I said, uh, well, I have a business. I have employees. He said, yeah, but they don't work there. They don't know where you are. You're on a laptop. You could, you could work here. Would you look at porn if you were working here? I said, no, I'm not quite that sick. <laughs> He said, well, do what you want, but my suggestion is give up the office, start working here. So I did. Started working at Starbucks, where I met a whole new group of addicts. People who are the same people, the same time, every day, coming for the same drug, right on time. (laughs) And uh, as the months passed, I said hi to people. I got to know some names. Every now and again, somebody would ask me what I, and I'd start pinging people. How you doing? Oh, a lot better than I used to. Ping. If they responded, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm really grateful to be in recovery. Ping. And if the guy said, recovery from what? 
I'd buy him a cup of coffee, sit him down, tell him my story. It got fun after a while. I've told my story to hundreds and hundreds of guys, but and most of the guys I've told my story to are not sex addicts, at least not to the degree I am. But I've yet to tell my story to a man who doesn't recognize the power of sex. Never told my story to a man who hasn't done something sexual he's ashamed of. I've never told my story to a man who doesn't have something in his life that's bigger than he is. And I've lost count of the number of times that when I'm finished, that guy has said, you know, I've never told anybody this before. But I'm now the safest guy he knows. And he hands me that thing that the enemy has been beating him with for years. That thing that has been crippling his marriage, his family life, his professional life. That thing. And what I started doing was saying, well, if you want, I'll walk with you a while. Started going for walks with guys. Give them the phone number. Say, call me every day. Tell me what you're feeling, what you're thinking, what you're doing, what you're thinking of doing. Meet me once a week. We'll go for a walk. Um, What a great joy. Turns out that, you know, addicts have a, you know, they share an inner architecture. So I found (laughs) that I could be helpful to some guys whose addictions were different from mine. Maybe not as helpful for somebody who'd been down exactly the same road, but I could, I could get them started. I did discover, I, I would take a lot of them to 12-step meetings. Not every guy fit. A lot of the guys that I was uh, eventually walking with are Christians. In fact, virtually all of them. This is Middle Tennessee. I mean, everybody pretty much is a Christian here or a nominal Christian. Um, a lot of them were very devout Christians and just couldn't make the jump to a group that talks about a higher power and where their familiar vocabulary was missing. Others just didn't fit because their behavior just didn't match the program. Eventually I was walking with uh, 16 guys, four more than Jesus. It was not good. Uh, And my wife spotted the problem. We were at dinner one night at a restaurant, and the phone rang. It was a guy who was deep in the weeds. And I said, uh, I excused myself from the table, went and talked the guy down for 20 minutes or so, came back. The food was cold, and my my wife wasn't. And... um, and she said, and I said, look, 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 we're doing great, right? She says, yeah, we're doing great. And you see the change? Yes, do. I mean, by this time, she trusted me again. It was amazing. We're closer than we've ever been. I said, look, it's because of these phone calls. I, I, it's not that I'm helping. It helps me to get phone calls from other guys. <laughs> In fact, that's the big deal. I'm being helped by helping other people. She said, I get it. I get it. Just have a couple of questions. She said, uh, do these guys who are calling you, do they know each other? I said, uh, so I, I, 
I don't know, probably not. She said, are they getting phone calls like you're getting phone calls? These really helpful phone calls that you get, are they getting any phone calls? Or is everybody calling you? She said, I'm worried you're putting yourself at the center of the wheel again. She knows me. I'm an aspiring Messiah, right? She said, I I really think you ought to get those guys together. And that's how we started the Samson Society. Got all the guys together one night, (laughs) and they uh, introduced them to each other. By that time, we'd written a, a meeting format the first draft of a charter that went through 16 versions before we made it official. What we started doing was walking with each other. Um, The Samson Society operates under the assumption, with the deep conviction, that on any given day, every man needs help and every man has some help to give. the verse that inspires us most, or at least inspires me most, is 1 John 1, 7. When we walk in the light, as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Real fellowship. Not fake friendship, but noble brotherhood. We have fellowship with one another. And in that fellowship, as we walk together, Christ joins us as he promised he would. And, um, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We follow that. We experience that miraculous process of progressive sanctification. But it comes through relationship, through honest, authentic relationship. Um, you know, I... Prior to recovery, I had always been willing to trust Christ. I'd never been willing to trust the body of Christ. I, I didn't actually believe in the body of Christ. I thought that was a metaphor. <laughs> I did not believe that Jesus is physically present on this planet in the lives of broken people. But I want to tell you, I believe it today. And The greatest act of surrender that I make to Christ every day is to tell the truth to another member of the body of Christ. And it still amazes me that I can dial the number of a guy who I know is as messed up as I am and Jesus answers the phone. I hear him in the voice of my brother. This is a great opportunity for the church Uh, Our culture is under an incredible sexual assault. Some things have happened since uh, I got into recovery. I I got into recovery in 1998. Let me give you one metric that'll kind of illustrate how dire the situation is. And let's, let's, let's just talk about millennials and what they are facing. The world, uh, first of all, there is a... uh, There is a study that uh, has been conducted on a 10-year cycle uh, called the Global Study of Sexual Attitudes and Behavior, the GSSAB. Uh, More than 13,000 respondents in dozens of countries all over the globe. And uh, 
as part of that study, there are six questions which together make, some, make up something called the International Index of Erectile Function, the IIEF. There actually is such a thing. Now, historically, that index has shown that among males 40 and under, 2% suffer some form of erectile dysfunction. That's been a stable number. And when the study was conducted in 2001, among males 40 and under, the number came in right around 2%. Uh, September 2006, the first tube porn site came online. This was a game changer. It disrupted the porn industry because now users could upload pirated or homemade porn and they could view porn without downloading it. Porn use just exploded. It took the profit out of, uh, it took two-thirds of the profit out of the porn business, which is what's driving the porn producers to virtual reality now so that they can recover their place in the market. Uh, that was September 2006. June 30th, 2007. You know what that date is? The iPhone was introduced. The very first smartphone. Now, with tube sites and a screen you can carry in your pocket, porn became portable and accessible to anybody. The next time the study was done, in 2011, the rate of erectile dysfunction among males, 40 and under, had jumped from 2% to 28%. Urologists now have a term for it. It's PIED, porn-induced erectile dysfunction, and it's rampant. Subsequent studies in uh, controlled studies in other nations ha have confirmed the number. If anything, it's rising. This helps to account for uh, a dis the disruption in relationships, the reluctance of many millennials to marry. Porn is an issue, a named issue, in more than 60% of divorces. Um, and let's take into account now what effect this has on women. Let's set aside for a moment the fact that the fastest growing uh, group demographic among porn users is female. And pornographers have spotted this is, the, this is their opportunity for growth. So they are pouring billions of millions of dollars, perhaps billions, I don't know, an awful lot of money into creating pornography, especially for women, targeted to women. I am told I don't have... Uh, this is largely anecdotal, but I am told that among middle schoolers, porn use among girls is practically at parity now with porn use among boys. So um, all of this porn use has conditioned the male brain, the typical male brain among college among college students, college males, certainly porn use is, is uh, for all practical purposes, 
universal. And with this new technology, we're now being conditioned to be addicted to novelty. That's the real hook, novelty. So it doesn't matter. I worry about my granddaughter, Ruby, a beautiful eight-year-old girl. What are the chances when she's of age that she's going to be able to have a boyfriend who's not conditioned by pornography, who hasn't already participated uh, virtually in tens of thousands of sex sex acts? And it really doesn't matter how beautiful Ruby is when she becomes a woman, and she'll be a beautiful woman. She's only one woman. She's only one. This is the dragon of the age. It's, uh, it's tearing at the self-esteem of women who are getting the message that wives who, whose husbands no longer find them attractive, uh, girls whose boyfriends uh, just can't seem to focus, can't connect, who suffer from a porn-induced, maybe not an erectile dysfunction, but certainly an intimacy disorder. This tears at the fabric of society, at the foundations of civilization. This is not about being good anymore. Um, But I believe that this has created an enormous opportunity for the church if we will just find the courage to address it. People are desperate for help. Desperate for help. And if our church can be a safe place for them to bring this real problem and where they can find another broken and healing person to walk with, where they can receive, in addition to good gospel teaching, good Christian coaching and companionship of the type that Jesus gave to his disciples, the the type that the early disciples gave to their disciples. If we can just become real people together. Uh, Churches that will confront addiction, and particularly sex addiction, but not exclusively sex addiction, uh, in my experience, are vibrant and growing. Um, And so I want to encourage you, if your church has not opened that door, open that door. All right. uh, Have I run over time? When are we supposed to end? Okay. Five minutes for Q&A? Okay. Yes, Dr. Kavalos. Yeah, just go ahead and say it. Okay. Um, in your experience working with, with men who struggle with sexual addiction, have you ever encountered one individual who has been able to overcome their addiction without developing a discipleship-like relationship with another individual who struggles with the same <clears throat> addiction? Okay, so the question is, in my experience, and I love the fact that you, that you, cause you know the answer to the question. <laughs> Have I ever in my experience encountered uh, an addict who has, has recovered without a, an ongoing relationship, helping, personal, discipling relationship with somebody else 
uh, with experience in the same addiction? And the answer is no. To take the question a step further, um, on top of that, that same individual, have you ever met anybody or anybody that does have this relationship yeah. with somebody who's in recovery themselves? Yeah. Um, that individual not being transparent to, say, his wife mm -hmm. or his family unit. Mm -hmm. um, have you met anybody that's had success? Married man? Yeah, who has not uh, disclosed? Right. One of the things I find yeah. in the purity groups I run is um, there are men who come who really want help. Yeah. Um, and for so long they've lived a double life and lying about their addiction. Right. And now they want to lie about their sobriety. Right. Um, and um, I just, you know, have you ever seen that? Yeah, have I ever seen it? No. I, I, and there is this great joy when you can finally talk a guy into disclosure. Now, I will tell you this. I was cautioned against a full disclosure to my wife at the very beginning. I made my, my, I did full disclosure to my sponsor and did an extensive first step. My wife knew about the porn. She did not know about the hookers. I told everything I could remember to my sponsor. Uh, he said, how do you feel when I got done? I said, man, I feel great. He says, I, you know, five, 40 tons lighter. He said, I bet you want to come go straight home and tell your wife everything, don't you? And I said, yes, I do. And he said, please don't. Not yet. He said, it's not fair to her for you to buy your own peace of mind at the expense of hers, destroying her with a confession that she is not expecting. You're going to begin today doing a living amends. You're going to tell her you're a sex addict. She knows about the porn. You're going to tell her you're never going to lie to her again and you will give her a direct an honest answer to a direct question from here on out. And he said, when she's ready for the answer, she'll ask the question. I don't know whether that was the best advice. I, I do know. Now, I've asked Allie since. I said, what if you would have known everything? It was another three years before Allie asked the question. By then, she'd seen a lot of change in me. And by that, I'd always been such a good liar. She was convinced that I had never been physically unfaithful to her. She would have bet her life that I had never done that. And she told, she was in counseling, and she told a counselor that, and the counselor <coughs> laughed. So later that night, I mean, at 11.30, why they wait until 11.30, I don't know, but they do. As I'm just on the edge of consciousness, she says, so have you ever had sex with anybody other than me since we're married? Now, by this time, I had probably told 50 guys. I had told our children. Uh, everybody knew but her. I was dying to tell her I wished that I would have had the help of a skillful therapist and somebody trained in disclosure who could have helped walk us through disclosure much earlier because I spent three years... It killed me not to tell her. And, and it was hard for her to get that news, that kind of delayed hit. That was rough. She did say that the, the change that she had seen in me during that, those intervening years were enough to convince her that I was not the same person and that I was a, still somebody she might be able to trust again. But... We still had a couple of rough years. I slept in a closet for a couple of years after that disclosure before we rebuilt. 
Um, and uh, I, the, the sooner we can bring guys or women to, to honesty and disclosure, the better. I do know, I know a number of guys who made reckless first disclosure with no help, ambush their wives just to, to uh, unburden their conscience and, and the marriage didn't, from that point, it went nuclear and they didn't have a chance of surviving. Allie said if she had known everything at the very beginning, she's not sure she could have been able to stay. So it's kind of a qualified answer there on disclosure. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, I didn't really find my feet in recovery until Allie knew everything. Yeah. All right. Thank you, everybody. I think we hit the end of the time. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers podcast. Make sure to download your copy of the free ebook associated with this track by Nate Larkin. It's called Beyond Accountability. You can get it at discipleship.org slash accountability. You'll find dozens of other great resources at discipleship.org as well. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.